my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project UP, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Fast Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze. And it felt a little like... Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your usual-ish host, um, becoming less and less prominent because we have tons of hosts now. But I am here with one of the OG ITB co-founders, Dr. Nicholas Nissen, who is a psychiatry resident, first year. Um, he's been with ITB for the past, um, well, since May of 2018. And we realized we had never actually talked on the podcast. So this episode is meant to, number one, do that. Because uh, you've hosted a few um, actual episodes too, right, Nick? I have, yeah. Um, and then we just never spoke. But today's topic is part of our addiction series, Introduction to Addiction Medicine for Med Students. I'm really excited about this topic. I'm really excited about addiction in general, just because I found out today, instead of having to get enough clinical experience in six months to sit for the addiction board exam, the American Board of Preventative Medicine actually extended it by four years. So now I have tons of time, which for those out there listening, you have no idea how much of a burden that lifts off me because I am super busy right now. Hence why we have other hosts. But Nick, welcome. Hey, thanks for uh, joining me in this little project. Thank you very much. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. I can't believe we never did this. Um, I, I'd like to tell the story of how we met. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I, this was May 2018. I had been out of the military about seven months and looking ahead at what I'm going to do with my life. And I thought, you know what? I should really try to turn ITB into like a, a business, um, a company that can sustain itself uh, so that we can teach med students all sorts of fun stuff and hopefully save them time. You know, the stuff you hear uh, me and others probably say all the time, like study on the go, um, restore some of the you know, humanism to medicine, um, put your test taking in the context of your whole professional life and it's not the most important thing, help you reduce anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And I got an email, I think initially from Nick, who was like, hey, I listened to your stuff and it's not terrible. We should talk. And so at some point we uh, video conference, this was like pre-Zoom when Zoom was like huge days. We used FaceTime um, and decided that uh, we'd start working on the project uh, together. Um, Nick helped uh, in large part with uh, getting the QBank, uh, audio QBank off the ground. And we've been talking ever since. But on that first conversation, Nick was like, I was like, hey, man, what are you, what are you thinking about doing with your life? Because you were a third year then, right? 
I, I had just taken step one at the end of step uh, at the end of the second year and was going into the third year. Okay. So you were like, yeah, I'm going to be plastic surgery because I'm like a good looking guy. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I want to be a surgeon and, you know, being a surgeon is so cool. And I remember saying something to the effect of you should do psych. And I, I think I said that our first conversation, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And here you are doing psych. See, my <laughs> advice is good. Yeah. Things you, you, you were maybe one of the first people that really plant that in my brain. And it was so out of left field uh, with my mind, you know, centered on plastic surgery. It's, it's pretty different. It is. But so what, what were the barriers when, when you first heard me say like, hey, you should do psych, uh, what were your thoughts? Well, I think uh, in some ways, you know, my mind was centered around just sort of this, this future vision for myself with, with surgery and psych is just, you know, on super, superficially is so different from that. Uh, but um, I do think that part of, uh, part of it uh, is the stigmas associated with uh, mental illness and with uh, the profession itself. I think that a lot of people uh, that I've spoken to when they're going through their, their clerkships, they're uh, concerned about psychiatry as they're thinking about uh, whether it be the population that they'd be treating um, or whether it be kind of how they're perceived. Um, and I think all of us in medicine, we have a, some degree of ego that we uh, have to wrestle with at one point uh, in our career or another. And um, that, that was part of it as well, uh, that there's maybe a, a very large social value to being a surgeon and that that's uh, not always reflected in psychiatry. Um, and so uh, that, that was something that I had to wrestle with as well. You know, I, I think I, because I'm sure people have heard me say, like, I was really torn between doing psych and, and OB um, like a week before we had to submit our match for the military. And uh, to be honest, I, I sort of wish I had done psychiatry, um, but that's a, another story. But at the same time, I remember kind of thinking like, you know, the, I think the way my, my wife put it, who is a psychiatrist, was like, you know, uh, people think psychiatrists aren't, quote, real doctors, which I, I don't think like that at all anymore. So I, I don't even know if it still kind of persists out there. But number one, that's stupid. Um, it is completely wrong. I think it takes a lot of insight for you to admit like there was sort of a, a conception of what prestige would look like and how that figured into what your medical career would be and how you would serve patients. So that's good on you. I'd say you probably would agree that telling people out there if they're like, ah, oh, I don't want to do this or that specialty because then it's, you know, like I'm not like, I don't know, the, I'm not going to be like the shit then. Um, that's probably not like something that should hold you back from exploring something that may interest you. Right. But it's, you know, it, it is a real uh, barrier that a lot of people feel nonetheless. And perhaps it's more prominent in some uh, areas compared to others. Um, I think, you know, being in the Midwest and where I grew up in particular, uh, uh, there's sort of, I think, maybe less of a respect for mental illness than there is uh, where, where I am now. Um, and and I also think that just with time, people, you know, generally across the nation are becoming more aware of the validity of mental illnesses, the biological basis behind mental illnesses, and um, it's becoming uh, more and more understood. Yeah, I would say just a little plug for the specialty of psychiatry from an outsider uh, where the grass is always greener. A few things practical. Number one, psych is one of those fields of medicine where the research is really just starting to come into its own. Like you can't do blood tests for you know, psychiatric diseases or sort of more and more you can do things related to that. But we, you're like really on a, in a field that has so much to learn to come into its own as far as a truly, you know, medical, biologic-based specialty. And it's there, I would say, and there's just like a shit ton more to explore. Number two, if you want to finish psychiatry school, or psychiatry residency, you, you finish psychiatry residency, and for like $100, you can start practicing, which is much different than if you're a plastic surgery, uh, surgeon or an OBGYN, because you can practice anywhere over you know, telemedicine uh, with psych very easily. You don't need hospital privileges 
Um, your malpractice is cheap. There isn't much in terms of startup cost. And you, know, you, you don't have to have fancy equipment um, to do your doctoring. And there's a lot to be said for those practical things as you consider your specialty choice, um, your other interest. Psych fits in very well with um, you know, people who can't be devoted to just one thing and one thing only. They know that they want to have some variety. Um, psych is one of those things that more and more money and funding uh, is going towards mental health, which is great. So you have this you know, opening up of the healthcare economic landscape um, to expand possibilities for mental health care treatment. I mean, I, I could go on. I, I think Sykes really cool. <laughs> this is pretty much the same pitch that Patrick was laying on me uh, the, <laughs> the first time you mentioned. Yeah, I don't know. I... But honestly, it, it is really important to begin with a natural interest because um, just preparing for talking with Patrick right now, it was the easiest thing in the world for me to go and look at dual diagnosis and you know comorbid psychiatric illnesses with addictions because I love it. I could read this all day, every day, and I would not get tired. Um, and, you know, if it doesn't feel like that, if it doesn't feel like it, it's something that, you know, holds your interest, then, you know, you're going to battle with it just like you would with anything else that isn't a natural fit. Yeah, totally. You know, I, and that with OBGYN stuff, I had that same feeling as a med student. I loved reading that stuff about like fetal development. And I mean, I still find it interesting. I, I just think the whole concept of, of, you know, motherhood and just what ladies have to go through to keep our species going that I am so thankful that I never have to do is really interesting. Um, I had that definitely. Um, I would say another thing, you know, besides interest in the subject matter that's important would be uh, in, in specialty selection. You know, when you rotate, when you hang out with different contexts where the specialties practice, like, are those your people? Are the patients your people? Are the colleagues like your people? Do you feel uh, comfortable and like you fit in personality-wise? I'd say, or I'd ask, what's your take on on that? You know, it's it's something that I heard over and over, uh, and it's it's an interesting suggestion because sometimes I would say I agree with it, um, but like my personality, I think I'm a bit of a chameleon, um, and. I've had friends that are the jockiest of jocks or the frat bros of the frat bros. And I've had friends who are the next in line to be a saint or to, uh, uh, or who's, you know, studying astrophysics and can hardly, you know, hold a conversation with someone they're attracted to, or <laughs> like the sort of the whole spectrum of, of people I, I sort of find to be my friends. So I can't say that with everyone I interacted with in psychiatry, I'm like, oh, this is my next best friend. Uh, but there definitely are those people. And I actually really appreciate there being diversity and sort of the personalities of people that I interact with. And I think that is definitely the case within psychiatry and not the case within a lot of other specialties. Um, you know, there's, there's certain populations of people that I'm not going to look like what they look like. I'm not going to speak how they speak. Uh, and they need someone else that looks how they look and speaks how they speak. And so for them to feel kind of more of that rapport with them. So, uh, so I don't know. I, I think I, in general, kind of reject that uh, old idea of kind of choose your people. But if you are somebody that has a very particular sort of group of friends that you always hang around with or sort of you're just, you fit into a mold, then maybe that, that is more valuable for you. And not to belabor this too much, but like, I kind of just mean like stereotype wise. So like, you know, if you're mm -hmm. a little bit weird, you probably should be in psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if you're comfortable around those people, then yeah, maybe that's for you. Well, that's me for sure. But I won't say anything more on that because we should probably talk a little bit about today's subject, which is psychiatric comorbidity vis-a-vis -vis addiction. That's what we're going to title the episode. Awesome. No, probably not. But uh, all right. So let's dive into just like a straight up question, kind of bread and butter like we usually do. So I'll take this and we can talk through it. Great. So thanks to Stat Pearls, we have a 30-year-old female who's brought to the emergency department by a concerned neighbor. 
man, neighbors are not like that concerned. So, you know, you know, something's going on. Uh, who states she's acting strange, won't say hello or answer questions. She's not agitated or tremulous, but she refuses to answer questions and stares straight ahead. Her vital signs are normal. The odor of alcohol is detectable on her clothing. So the question is, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment for this patient? Man, they just went right for it. All right. So you've got a a female brought not of her own volition to an emergency department who is basically got a normal physical exam with the important exception that she is not answering questions and she's staring blankly with the smell of alcohol on her. So what's the best treatment? A, multivitamin. B, diazepam. C, phenobarbital. Or D, olanzapine. That's interesting. So walk me through what the correct answer is and why. So the correct answer would be D, olanzapine. And as you're going through this question, you're thinking altered mental status plus smells of alcohol. Um, And I think some important information is hidden in this question, which is, first of all, the person is not tremulous um, and has normal vital signs. So obviously a very, very common cause of altered mental status in somebody that uses alcohol would be alcohol withdrawal and that they could have associated delirium tremens or withdrawal seizures or uh, something of that nature. But the fact that the patient doesn't have abnormal vital signs, so in alcohol withdrawal, uh, you may see um, sort of autonomic instability, so tachycardia, there may be um, uh, changes in their blood pressure that you would note. Um, So since they don't have those vital sign changes um, and they're not tremulous, which is uh, one of the most common things that you'd find, uh, one of the the most sensitive way to look for um, tremors in somebody that's withdrawing from alcohol is to look for tremors in the tongue. So you have them stick out their tongue, um, and uh, that's if if you see that it's fasciculating, uh, then that's a very sensitive way for you to know that they may be withdrawing from alcohol. So she lacks these signs um, and nevertheless has altered mental status. Um, so this is appearing to be psychosis as opposed to alcohol withdrawal and. In the case of psychosis, you would want to treat that with an antipsychotic. Okay, back up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Psychosis, come on. So this person isn't like saying, you know, the uh, Martians are out to get me or there are black helicopters flying above my house monitoring uh, my, my thoughts and my actions. They're not like, this isn't psychosis, is it? That's a leading question. <laughs> I, was reminded, I, I was reminded of why this might be psychosis recently. So, but tell us, teach us? Yeah. Well, uh, it's a good question, but I think uh, as a lot of us learn psychosis, we tend to think and focus on the positive symptoms of psychosis or schizophrenia. Um, And uh, those are what Patrick was just alluding to of hallucinations, um, uh, delusions, or paranoia, but uh, there can certainly be negative symptoms as well. And that would be more like what we're seeing in this patient. Yeah. So tell me about those. What are negative symptoms? Negative symptoms would be some of, some of the uh, sort of uh, less, how would you say, sort of uh, less apparent findings that you would have in somebody with, that's, that's in a psychotic state. So in this patient, you know, they have a blank stare. They're not answering questions. Um, so you, you may notice that somebody's just not moving as much um, uh, that they... Does that go towards like a... Because this is what... Uh, I forgot, like, isn't psychosis have like, you know, the, the strange presentation with hallucinations, delusions that frankly, what I think often we think of as interesting stuff because it's full of often good story and content. Uh, but there's also the psychosis of like catatonia. Right. And catatonia. And this blank stare. Exactly. Uh, indicates like a flat affect or, or not. Right. Yeah, that that would be uh, related, and and uh, catatonia is definitely well not well well separate from psychosis. Catatonia uh, is a sort of related phenomenon, um, and it would present sort of similarly to this, where somebody may um, you know not answer questions, stare straight ahead. Uh, there could be uh, you know sort of the waxy uh, flexibility that you know some people 
they're yeah so they're they're sort of uh related although uh, you you would see catatonia also in in things like major depressive disorder and really deep depression can you fake catatonia so somebody could fake catatonia for a while but it would be pretty quick for for a psychiatrist or for you know sort of well-informed doctor to figure out that it's being faked it'd be pretty sh- what do you just like poke them with your finger and see if they react one of the things that you could do is hold somebody's uh, arm up and then see how it changes against gravity. So most people wouldn't know about sort of the, the slow waxy drifting, either their arm would stay there or they would drop completely. And so one thing that you could do if somebody's arm is limp and it's dropping, uh, which would be a more common thing for somebody to do if, um, if it were volitional, is you could hold their arm or their hand above their face and then drop it. And if somebody's, uh, if, if it is volitional, somebody's going to uh, move their hand away from their face to keep themselves from smacking themselves versus if they truly had no control over their limbs, they would actually hit themselves um, and obviously not injure themselves. So that's, that's one way that you could test. Wait a minute. The test is like when you were a kid, you grab the person's hands and say, stop hitting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> not quite, but uh, in that direction, maybe. Uh, similar principle. Yeah. Okay. So why treat uh, her with, well, okay. So if this was alcohol withdrawal, you'd probably be expected um, to choose something like diazepam. Right. Um, or phenobarbital. Or, yeah. It, but like, I, I will say too, just keep in mind for testing purposes, probably the drug of choice to treat alcohol withdrawal in terms of benzodiazepines is chlordiazepoxide just that's a pearl there yeah it's interesting to keep in mind because uh that's not necessarily what what it is in the real world real clinical world usually it's uh, adivan or lorazepam or diazepam yeah but they're longer act right right the diazepam and the chlordiazepoxide are so olanzapine though so we are saying she has a psychotic disorder um and we're going to treat her with olanzapine why does that work so olanzapine would be a second generation or atypical antipsychotic um and um you know there could be several different antipsychotics that are used um and somebody that has altered mental status an important thing to consider is what kind of medication they can take if it's always you know wonderful if somebody can take something po uh, but if they are unable to take uh, in uh, an oral medication, then you need to consider usually an IM formulation, intramuscular injection. And uh, that's a major way that you could choose between antipsychotics because not all are available in the IM formulation. Oh, makes sense. But as a, as a second generation antipsychotic, lanzapine is often used uh, in the outpatient realm as well. And as you all might know from your step one or step two studying, uh, it's associated with metabolic syndrome. Um, so it's important. Olanzapine obesity. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And there's actually, it's kind of interesting aside, um, but there's uh, different ways that different medications are abused in different populations. And so olanzapine has been known to be abused in the um, incarcerated population because um, it's known to create sort of gains uh for people that are lifting weights um because it causes it can cause weight gain so um it's a it's a major side effect to to you know keep in mind but in this sort of situation where somebody's acutely psychotic and they're just going to receive maybe one dose of this it's not going to cause that uh, side effect immediately all right one down psychosis that can be comorbid with addiction and that's how you tell the difference between addiction or alcohol related uh, psychosis and a primary psychosis. All right, we're done. No, I'm just kidding. All right, what are we going to talk about next? Uh, did you want to do another question or did you want... Uh, I, I had a couple things that I could talk about otherwise. Yeah, for this one, why don't we just uh, go through what, what you have prepared because there's a lot to be said for this particular series. So, And, and since I need to get a crap ton of... Uh, different experiences in education and clinical practice related to addiction. Maybe we can <laughs> schedule another one and I'll, I'll read up hardcore too on uh, psychiatric comorbidity. 
Well, uh, I, I think that a really helpful way to start thinking about comorbid psychiatric disease and addiction is by thinking about the self-medication theory. So this is something that was mind-blowing for me when I first heard about it as a medical student, which is basically to look at all people with substance use disorders and say, what are they treating with their substance use? And so, you know, just like any medication, all of these substances or illegal drugs uh, have their effects on the brain, and that's why the people are using them. So um, there's, you know, some of the most commonly abused substances uh, would include alcohol. That would be uh, considered an anxiolytic. It could, you know, it, it helps to stop someone's anxiety. And that, that's why a lot of people like to use it in partying environments, as particularly people that have some degree of social anxiety, because it helps to bring down your anxiety to, you know, calm your inhibitions and allow you to um, maybe socialize in a way that you normally would uh, have a lot of discomfort doing. Similar to alcohol would be benzodiazepines. Um, so it's pretty common for kids or adults or college students or partiers to seek out benzodiazepine uh, medications um, as a way to sort of party either in addition to alcohol use, which can be very dangerous, um, or just on their own. Or, uh, you know, in somebody that, uh, for instance, has generalized anxiety disorder that is contributing to their sleep, they, they may need to calm their anxieties. And when you're given an anxiolytic like a benzodiazepine, uh, you might find that it helps you to fall asleep more quickly and can start abusing uh, benzodiazepines that way. Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra, albuterol budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit airsupraconnect.com to connect with a provider. So another realm of, of self-medication would be pain. Um, so the largest class of pain meds um, that's, that are abused would be opioids. Uh, they're pretty effective for pain, uh, but certainly if you are somebody with chronic lower back pain that is, you know, prescribed um, some oxycodone, uh, and then your doctor starts, you know, lowering your dose or stops it, you're going to be very tempted to use something like street heroin or fentanyl to uh, to deal with your your back pain. So again, self medicating there. Marijuana is something that. Uh, that people can find to be helpful for pain. And so again, if you have chronic pain, it may lead you to uh, abuse marijuana. And then uh, one that's, that's interesting as well would be for people with ADHD um, or, or problems with, um, with uh, sort of uh, attention deficit or hyperactivity. Uh, so I remember I had this one patient who actually had had a stroke uh, in his um, frontal cortex and uh, actually his prefrontal cortex and uh, he uh, abused Adderall and had a long history of abusing stimulants. Um, and it's pretty interesting to think about how, uh, you know, an injury to your prefrontal cortex could really limit your ability to, to inhibit your own um, sort of limbic uh, drives and that you could turn to stimulants as a way to uh, treat this, uh, this own issue, your, your own issue of self-inhibition, which would be kind of similar to the treatment for ADHD. So those are just some ways to think about, you know, self-medication. Whenever you see a patient who has a substance use disorder, think, what are they using and what are they trying to treat with that substance? Yeah, I think that makes sense. When I have patients now, like, come in, I, I mean, there's a, a pathway to a substance use disorder, um, a few different patterns, I would say, like, uh, phenotypically, the very common one, which uh, surprised me how common is I had an injury or a surgery, like even a C-section. My doctor prescribed me Percocet or Vicodin or some sort of synthetic opioid pill. Um, I needed it for a month and I had this pain, but then I, I realized I kind of liked the feeling. And so when my primary prescriber was like, okay, well, I'm not going to prescribe any more of this stuff. I went to another doctor and I was able to get the same sort of medication for another two months. And then every time I tried to stop taking, I felt like super ill. 
Um, and so I started asking friends and family or buying pills off the street, but that is super expensive, like 20 bucks a pill, um, depending on what it is. And then I had to turn to heroin or fentanyl to prevent withdrawal. So you have that sort of like doctors not being judicious enough about explaining to patients the danger of addiction related to opiates um, and being on guard uh, for risk factors and whatnot. And then uh, just kind of like writing the script and forgetting about uh, the fact that you could be setting somebody up for like some huge problems, uh, depending on the amount you're giving them. So there's that iatrogenic almost uh, substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. um, then you have the people, you know, average age is a around 13 that somebody who has a substance use disorder um, starts taking something illicit and um in, in those circumstances, I, I mean, almost universally, it's a parent introduced them to it. Like, yeah, like person today told me, I, uh, I like, I, I could barely listen to this, but he was like, I, I was so sick of like seeing my dad like run off and like, I just missed him and I wanted to be with him. And so uh, when I was like 13, I told him, I don't want you to leave dad. So if, if I'll do it with you. And that's how he got into heroin. And it's like, oh, man. And then for some people, they take an opiate. It's like a switch flips. And their you know, brain centers are primed to be uh, dependent on the dopamine hit that comes from taking an opiate. And then they take it. And then they can't get off it because the physical withdrawal symptoms are so shitty. Right. And I think that you bring up a really important point here, which uh, a lot of people kind of struggle to differentiate, um, at least among the lay community, which is what are the initial motivations for use versus the ongoing motivations for use? Yeah. And the initial motivation for use can be self-medication, like we were just talking about. But then like you talked about, a lot of these have really troublesome withdrawal syndromes or uh, side effects from intoxication that then leads somebody to continue to use. So the reason why somebody uses day to day or, you know, f after they had initially started might be totally different from their initial uh, psychiatric, maybe cause of their use. So, you know, for something like um, alcohol withdrawal syndrome, you get these terrible uh, tremors, uh, you can get headache, sleeping problems, anxiety. Uh, for people that are withdrawing from opioids, you get dope sick and by having, you know, pain all over your body, you can have goosebumps, abdominal pain, diarrhea. Um, so for so many people, um, about 95% of their use is just uh, to stave off these uh, terrible withdrawal syndromes that they're experiencing. Yeah, it's, it's the, the concept of it being like, oh, this person just wants to party and have a good time. That's why they're using heroin. I would say that's not really common. <laughs> not at all. I mean, it, it really isn't. But if somebody's presenting for help, like that's that's not what they're there for. It's something to keep in mind. Like there's a pretty good chance when you're in the ER pissed off and annoyed because somebody's quote drug seeking, it's because uh, these are all real situations. Their doctor got them hooked or they were involved in like human trafficking and kept on opiates to kind of pacify them so that they would you know do whatever it was that their their captors wanted them to um or they were the victim of you know significant abuse where they were introduced to substances that you know early teens like these are people with stories who really got dealt a wrong hand on, on the vast majority of cases. So it's uh, just keep that in mind when you're annoyed and, and think about your life and how it's like, not really that bad. I mean, yeah, step one's anxiety provoking. Um, and, you know, med school does suck in many, many respects. Um, but for the most part, I'm sure there are a lot out there uh, who just haven't had to deal with something so terrible as, as one of those situations. So, right. And like you were alluding to, uh, there is oftentimes, uh, in addition to either just getting hooked from your doctor, uh, there, there can be a mental illness that's at play. And so that sort of gets us to our topic of, of you know, dual diagnosis or comorbid psychiatric illness with, um, within addiction. 
And really, this is, this is when you have a coexisting mental health and substance use disorder. And I think as you're listening to that, the listener, it may sound uh, like a little, a little strange because you- So what? Yeah, exactly. Like, like what, this person has trichotillomania and uh, drinks too much alcohol? Is that dual diagnosis? That's an interesting question. I would, I would say uh, that's, that's certainly not one of the more common things. Um, the, <laughs> really what they're talking about is, is what? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the most common uh, illnesses probably would be anxiety disorders. So uh, PTSD, um, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder. These all have somewhere around probably 20 to 50% of uh, comorbidity between anxiety disorders and uh, the substance use disorder. So really, really common. I think like you had mentioned before, maybe before we had started recording about uh, 37.9. So between a, a third and a half of uh, people with substance use, dis substance use disorders have mental illnesses. Um, and that's 7.7 .7 million Americans. So it's really a very common thing to come across in the hospital. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, you should, you should consider, Nick, a fellowship in addiction psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep recommending all the stuff I wish I would have done for you. Yeah, no, I'm just going to, I'm following whatever recommendations you make because you were uh, spot perfect. on with this one. Perfect, perfect. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, I would say that term definitely confused me too and, and still does to a certain extent um, in practical terms like dual diagnosis. That's not that hard to have, you know, both of these things. but probably the intention of having specific like dual diagnosis clinics um, is to take care of those people who have very, they're not uh, smoking cigarettes and have stable depression where they're on a low dose SSRI for a couple years. You're, you're looking for people who have like complex medical interactions potentially between their addiction and their psychiatric diagnosis and who require like uh, i think your term is wraparound care or more like comprehensive services that will you know give them community support stabilize their housing right that you have the expertise of somebody like uh, an addiction psychiatrist who um, knows how to treat their opiate use disorder with uh, methadone and the appropriate um, antipsychotic for their um, schizophrenia because there's, you know, QT prolongation is a, a, a thing that methadone does and all the atyp, I think it's all the atypical antipsychotics. Maybe it's not all, but it's, yeah, it's got to be a, a huge portion. So close. Yeah. A lot of them. And first generation also. Yeah, so like I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be like, okay, cool. Uh, you need to go see someone else. I need you to be pretty vanilla. You just have to have an opiate use disorder if you're coming to see me. So go see the addiction psychiatrist for the dual diagnosis stuff. Yeah, it is true that uh, dual diagnosis does tend to be for kind of more serious cases of, of both illnesses happening at the same time. But I think you're getting at an interesting question, which is, you know, how is this really determined? How do we really diagnose that somebody has uh, a comorbid psychiatric illness with their substance use disorder? Because the substance use disorder itself is sort of, it is a, a, a mental illness as well. So it seems a little redundant, but the question here is the same as it is for all of the other uh, psychiatric diagnoses, which is what comes first? That, that's really what makes the difference between schizoaffective disorder, where you um, have some sort of psychosis that then results in an, a change in affect or a mood disorder like depression or mania following the, the, um, the sort of psychotic uh, illness versus having um, bipolar with psychotic features. And that you have the mood disorder or bipolar that then has psychotic features that develops when you're in the midst of your uh, manic illness. So it's the same here with this. You, why does that matter though? I bet a lot of people are like, okay, so if I have like a little hypomania or depression, uh, but then I get psychotic one time because those things are real bad, why is that different than I'm psychotic uh, and I have those symptoms, but then I develop kind of like a mood disorder afterwards? What, 
what's who cares? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I think it, it, people would care uh, in considering the medications that they would use. Obviously, it's very different treatment for yeah for bipolar and for that might not be obvious to all of us. Yeah, well, uh, it, I guess like as as you read and you study, you know, you'll see things like lithium or um, anti-convulsant uh, medications for uh, bipolar versus you may see you know you see antipsychotics used more commonly for psychotic illness. And so uh, it informs partially, you know, how the patient be treated, although there can be some combining or sort of mixing of those medications. And it's, it's just a very, it's a very different phenotype. You know, people that have schizophrenia, for instance, are, they tend to fall into a very sort of specific, you know, group of people. And it's, it'd be very uncommon for somebody who's, you know, 65 years old to have a first break psychosis that normally happens, you know, in your early twenties or late teens. So, um, it, it just kind of helps to inform their overall diagnostic picture and their treatment. Yeah. And I mean, I was being a little facetious because my, my thought was that the, the reason there's a distinction there is, uh, in large part because of the treatment choice too. And it's not just the, the same, like, cause I, I guess essentially too, what you'd be saying is if somebody has say, bipolar versus schizoaffective disorder, if I treated the schizoaffective person with lithium, they're not necessarily going to get better. Right. Not necessarily. And it, it may be that they're acutely manic, but that right. that's going to resolve. And may, maybe they've you know had this happen multiple times uh, in the past um, and their mania resolves after you know they stay up one night. It's, it's probably not worth having them on lithium their whole life just because they've, you know, stayed up overnight one night, you know, maybe once or twice in their life. Yeah. <laughs> what about people who are like, uh, you know, you're like taking their history and they're like, do you have any, um, you know, mental health diagnoses or have you ever been admitted to the hospital for a mental health uh, reason? And they're like, well, yeah, I got depression, anxiety, bipolar, and schizophrenia. <laughs> That is, it's, it's just, it's dishearteningly common for that to happen. And it's difficult, I think, you know, uh, and it's not a, cr a critique of the patients. I think, uh, unfortunately that population. Yeah, that's on us. <laughs> right. It, it is. And, um, and unfortunately people that struggle with, uh, mental illnesses, especially, um, serious mental illness, they can kind of bounce between a lot of different hospitals, a lot of different providers. And so, you know, based on however they're presenting, they're going to get some one diagnosis from one person versus one diagnosis from another. Um, and in some instances, it may be in an outpatient setting. In some in some instances, they may be intoxicated and in the ED. And um, you know, somebody says, you know, offhandedly that they're acting psychotic, and so then they assume that they have schizophrenia. So there's right. it, it's it's really difficult to really. Uh, kind of uh, understand what somebody's real diagnosis uh, is based on their history. And it's always best to just take your own exam yeah. when you can. All right. What else we got for comorbid psychiatric illness? Um, so uh, I would say that, you know, uh, actually I'll start with this. So it's important to figure out what comes first. So like I was just talking about with um, uh, schizoaffective disorder versus bipolar disorder with psychotic features, it's kind of the same thing here with this. Uh, so you want to figure out, did the person have the substance use disorder and then the psychiatric disorder afterwards or vice versa? Did they have the psychiatric disorder before the substance use disorder? So uh, these are questions that you can ask. So for anxiety disorders uh, in particular, it's a lot more common that those happen before the substance use disorder. Um, so there's this one study that looked at um, at anxiety disorders um, in those with substance use disorders and found that the anxiety disorder preceded drug dependence in 67.6 to 100% of cases. For anxiety disorders in particular, they almost always come before the substance use disorder. Hmm. However, it can be the case that somebody develops a psychiatric illness after their substance use disorder. Uh, this is, there's some instances of this happening uh, with uh, depression following alcohol use disorder. Alcohol is a depressant itself, and it can cause someone to have mood disorder while they're intoxicated, but also uh, afterwards, they can have a persisting depression. Uh, there can be psychosis following stimulant use. There's also psychosis 
occasionally following um, the use of marijuana in teens. Uh, if you have certain gene uh, variations in your COMT or AKT1 uh, uh, genes. So, uh, so it, it certainly can happen, but it, it, in most instances, the psychiatric illness occurs before the substance use disorder. Uh, you mentioned you had some cases. I did, yeah. So, so just to uh, sort of practice parsing this out, imagine a young man with schizophrenia and alcohol dependency complains of worsening mood and high anxiety without alcohol. Uh, he finds the al- alcohol helps to reduce the voices that he has, helps him to sleep. And so he binges on alcohol when he's feeling stressed and when to sort of quiet down his voices. And so what, what does this sound like? Well, this is, uh, it sounds like there's a pre-existing psychiatric illness, a psychotic illness, and then the patient had a substance use disorder that developed afterwards. And similarly, in a second case, you can imagine an elderly widow who lives uh, in an isolated community, has poor mobility, stays indoors most of the day. The patient uh, is physically dependent on alcohol, drinks every single day, um, and um, later on uh, is prescribed antidepressants by the patient's general practitioner. Well, it seems like this patient has um, a lot of reasons to um, have developed depression, and one of those things could be the substance use disorder, the alcohol use, um, and also there's they're, they're alone and they're uh, in their home, you know, by themselves with with a lot of uh, pain and sort of a lot of reasons to be sad. So, um, so uh, it's it's just important to parse out which one comes first, um, and that uh, is one of the goals for making a diagnosis. Now, is is that um, does that kind of go to the general? Treatment advice, I've heard that if somebody has both, you have to treat the addiction first. So I think what you might be referring to is that oftentimes we find ourselves in this really difficult situation of the person is either actively intoxicated or they're actively withdrawing. And so, you know, how could you diagnose generalized anxiety disorder in somebody who's withdrawing from alcohol? Right. When they're withdrawing from alcohol, they're going to be very anxious and that will be likely due to the alcohol. They could have generalized anxiety disorder, but we're not going to know that until they're in a sober state and they're not withdrawing. Yeah. So um, ideally- Or if somebody's, or if somebody's got like chronically on benzos right. and they've got like anxiety, it's probably related to withdraw um, as the interval between when they're taking it and not taking it. You know, they start to have basically the thing that they probably got benzos in the first place for anxiety before diagnosing, say, generalized anxiety, um, get them off the benzos, right? You don't want them to have an active addiction right? because it could mask. It, it could cause those situations where somebody is on meth and then they get admitted to a psychiatric unit and are diagnosed with bipolar um, because it might look like, you know, they've been up three days um, they might, you know, meet all the criteria, but if they're on meth, that might be the, the end of it if they never take meth again. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, this can be kind of more possible depending on the half-life of whatever the person's intoxicated with. So, uh, you know, if it's something that's very long acting, if somebody has a long, uh, a long, uh, dependence with on, um, on something like clonazepam or, or um, or methadone is also pretty long acting. Um, it can be pretty long for somebody to withdraw and be considered sort of um, you know completely clean from that substance um, for the interview to happen. But for something that has a shorter half life, like alcohol or cocaine, um, it can be done you know in a relatively qu- a quicker amount of time. Uh, but sometimes it is the case that you know patients are. Uh, that when they're on sort of a maintenance treatment of something like methadone or like suboxone, it might not be having a very significant impact on their uh, sort of mental state to where you can really get a feel for, you know, does this person have nightmares, flashbacks, and other signs of PTSD? And you could make that diagnosis even when they're taking methadone or yeah. suboxone. So it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. Gotcha. What else we got today? I would say that, you know, as far as treating this, um, you know, there may need to be then separate treatments um, for the psychiatric illness or for the substance use disorder. 
Um, and sometimes you can find a medication that treats both, which is really nice. So one of the most common uh, instances of that would be somebody that has tobacco use disorder and um, depression. You could give bupropion. Oh, I thought you were going to pimp me. Oh, I should. Oh, I should have pimped uh, the people listening. I would have got it right. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there's there's some evidence about it maybe for uh, cocaine use disorders. I've seen that too. Um, so uh, you know, so sometimes you can get kind of a kill two birds with one stone as they say, but uh, otherwise it may be the case that somebody would need to be on an antipsychotic in addition to uh, their- Naltrexone. Naltrexone, right. Um, so you may see a combination like that happen. All right, cool. Well, everyone out there, go into psychiatry. And if you're going to specialize, <laughs> uh, do a fellowship in addiction psychiatry. That's all we got for today. I think Next time, why don't we take like a bunch of MCQs related to um, comorbid psychiatric diagnosis. We'll plan to do that and then continue this series. There's a lot up here in the addiction world in our intro to uh, addiction medicine for medical students. So stay tuned, tell your friends, and please treat the patients right. Like they've had shitty lives. So that's all I got to say. I love those thoughts. And if I could do a uh, short plug, yeah, I have a, a podcast called Brain Health with Dr. Nissen, where I kind of dive into a lot of these similar topics there with some, uh, some people that are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, so uh, I invite you all to check it out. It's called Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. You can find it on uh, Apple um, or on uh, Spotify or pretty much anywhere where you get your podcasts. Um, and I may be able to uh, take some clips from this one and uh, we'll uh, let everyone in uh, my audience uh, get to know you too, Patrick, and hopefully have some follow-up interviews too. Yeah, go listen to Brain Health and we'll put a link in the show notes as usual. So thanks, Nick. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.